you have your Bibles, would you go ahead and turn with me to the book of Malachi. We're going to finish up our time in the Minor Prophets uh, this morning. While you're turning there, you probably noticed that some of you, you are, have noticed them right beside you. Today's our fifth Sunday, and so it's our opportunity to break and bring all the kids from Kids Praise. We're going to worship together. And I know with that, there is a little bit of uneasiness perhaps for moms, and your kids are squirming, and they're making noises. As a congregation, though, as a congregation, I want us to be trained to think, when we hear of a, the noise of a child, when we see the squirming of a child, to say, praise God for the child. Praise God for the child. Right? Look around the church, y'all. Look around. I want you to think about this. There are at least eight decades represented in the sanctuary today. At least eight decades, all of us brought together because of Jesus. All of us brought together because of Jesus. All of us brought from varied walks of life, through varied sufferings of life, through varied trials of life, through varied experiences of life, through varied lengths of life, brought together because of Jesus. Praise God for every generation, and praise God especially for the blessings of the children. So listen, if your child is squirming, if they're making noises, we're all going to laugh it off together, and we're going to praise God together, okay? That's what we do at Iron City. All right, Malachi chapter 1. We're going to read the first five verses. There's these six disputations in Malachi. And I really think getting the first one helps you grasp them all. So we're going to read the first one, the first five verses together. It says, The oracle of the word of the Lord to Israel by Malachi. I have loved you, says the Lord. But you say, how have you loved us? Is not Esau Jacob's brother, declares the Lord? Yet I have loved Jacob, but Esau I have hated. I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to the jackals of the desert. If Edom says, we are shattered, but we will rebuild the ruins, the Lord of hosts says, they may rebuild, but I will tear down, and they will be called the wicked country and the people with whom the Lord is angry forever. Your own eyes shall see this, and you shall say, great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. Let's pray to the Lord together. Heavenly Father, I pray that today, that you would renew the faith of someone who is doubting. That you would renew the faith of someone who is wavering. And that you would renew the faith of someone that is struggling. I pray, Father, that those that have come in with a, a strong faith and a fervent faith, that, Lord, you would fan the flame. That their faith might be white hot for your glory. And, Father, I pray a prayer of blessing over our graduates today. God, I, I pray that you would allow them to walk with a backbone of steel as they go to institutions of higher education and into the workforce. I pray, Father, that you would give them a fervent faith that is able to weather the struggles and travails of life and the accusations and questions and temptations of the evil one. I pray, Father, that their experience through college would be one of an abiding faith, of a revived faith, of a strong faith, that, Lord, they can build a, for a, as a foundation upon the rest of their lives. We ask these things now in Jesus' name. Amen. You may be seated. So there's a lot of talk now about deconstruction. That there is a movement called the Exvangelical Movement. And it seems like that there is a prominent Christian influencer almost every week now. That comes up and to say that they are renouncing the faith and are deconstructing from the faith and now consider themselves an exvangelical. Now, for some of you, the term deconstruction and exvangelical it, it may be a new term for you. It, you may have not heard this before. You may not be aware of the hashtag exvangelical Twitter uh, Twitter uh, 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 hashtag or TikTok videos. But here's why it's relevant. Your children have. Or your grandchildren have. And if they haven't, they will. And it's going to be relevant. And this is something that's especially appropriate, I think, for us to talk about here on Graduate Sunday. I think there's at least two reasons why we should talk about deconstruction. I think the, the first one is, is because you're going to experience a crisis of faith. It's going to happen. If you take your faith seriously, if you believe in God, if you believe the Bible, 
you will experience a crisis of faith. Many of you who have sat in my office that I've, I've counseled you through crises of faith, I've shared with you that I, several years ago, experienced as a seminarian a great crisis of faith and uh, of, of which I wasn't sure that I was going to completely pull out of. It's something that's going to take place. And I don't want you to be unaware of that. And I don't want you that to catch you by surprise. I, I said, want you to know that that's normal. That doubt and questions are the uncomfortable friends of faith. The second reason I think it's important for us to talk about it is because many of you are afraid of it. You're afraid, perhaps, that you will deconstruct. Maybe today you say, I, I do have a fervent faith in Christ. Today I, I am walking with Christ. Today I am uh, abiding in the scriptures. I am excited to come into the church, but I'm afraid. I'm afraid that as I go into college, or I'm afraid as I'm exposed to new ideas, or I'm afraid that, that as the winds of testing come in my life, that I, that I won't withstand the test. And you're afraid to deconstruct. Or perhaps you're afraid that your kids will. My goodness, I would be dishonest with you if I, if I told you that wasn't a concern for, my, for me. If that wasn't something that I often prayed to the Lord and probably the, the concern that all of us now as adults that have went through some of the travails of life and went through some of the hardships that life brings upon us and some of the, the doubts and some of the crises of faith that, that come about, all of us almost certainly are, are concerned that our children or our grandchildren will, will not weather the storm. Well, Christians, I, I don't think we're supposed to live in fear. I do believe, though, that we are supposed to live in awareness. And so I want us to talk about it, not because we're afraid, but so that we might be aware. And being aware, we might be able to address it and to recognize this is not an uncommon problem in the history of God's people. That as we come into Malachi and his prophecy, I think actually what we see is a deconstructing picture of the people of God. That they are going through a, a season of unbelief. Throughout the, the, the prophecy of, of Malachi, if you were able to read it this week, it actually refers to them as being faithless. As being faithless. As, as being those that, that have no faith. That being those that have no firm belief. Being those that are, are being blown away around perhaps by every wind of doctrine. Being those that they're apathetic and indifferent toward the purposes of God. And I think by seeing them, by seeing the deconstructing faith of the people of God in the prophecy of Malachi, I think we can begin to see pictures of our own unbelief. We can begin to diagnose and read the mail of those, that, those conversations that may come down the line with your children. Don't run away from those con con conversations. Lean into them because they'll go somewhere else. Prepare your heart. Use it to season your prayer life. First thing I want us to see this morning are two forms of deconstruction. Two forms of deconstruction. You know, during graduation series uh, season, graduation series season is really a, a time of aspiration, isn't it? For those of you who are our graduates, you've already been asked a hundred times what your future plans are, haven't you? You've been asked a hundred times to tell us about the school that you're going to go to and the scholarships that you're applying for, the job that you're pursuing. You've been asked a hundred times what your future plans are and what you want to do with your life. And honestly, you're probably about sick of it, aren't you? You've went and sat through inspirational speech after inspirational speech. Some of you are tasked with giving those inspirational speeches. And y'all, that is all good and right. We ought to look to the future as people who believe in the hope of the resurrection, as, pe with people, as people with optimism for what God will do. But what is often glazed over during graduation season is that none of you are going to get your dream in the way that you've dreamt it. None of you are. All of you are going to experience loss. All of you are going to experience disappointment. All of you are going to fail at something. And it's easy to think on the front side, in this position, in the season of aspiration and inspiration, looking forward, that you're going to persevere and that you're going to press on. And of course, everybody goes through hard times. I know that. I'm ready for that. Of course, everybody experiences loss. I know that. Of course, everybody uh, deals with failure. I know that. But when it's you, when it's you that has experienced the loss of somebody that you love, when it's you that's experienced the crashing down of your dreams, when it's you that doesn't get invited into the school of your choice, when it's you that doesn't make it into medical school, when it's you, it's much different. It's much different when you feel the intensity of the heat of that moment. 
And it's often during these seasons that you begin to experience the, the seminal thoughts of deconstruction. That's where Judah is, actually. Judah was a place of, of, of renowned glory in its previous history. Solomon had built a temple that people would travel far and wide to see. The, the, the reigns of David and Solomon had been expansive, making them a superpower on the earth. They were the people that God had rained down prosperity and defended them miraculously. But by the time of Malachi, the revival of Ezra, the revival of Nehemiah, the revival that, that was spurned on by the prophets we've just studied, Haggai and Zechariah, it had faded into history. A generation later, and what they look upon is a temple that is a shadow of its former glory. They see the, the walls rebuilt by Nehemiah, but they can't help but recognize that the walls have just been taped together, patched that they used to be at the center of the world scene, but now they are an afterthought, a vassal state of the Persian Empire. And it begins to wear on them. And it begins to set for them the stage for an apathetic faith, an indifferent faith, a, a perhaps we could say a deconstructing faith, seeing that the word faithless is used so often, perhaps it is seen to, to be the elimination of faith altogether for Judah. And so I think what we see are two different shades. What I want you to see are two different shades that deconstruction can take. First, there, there are those who say God doesn't live. God doesn't live. Now, for most, most of us, if you're familiar with the, the phrase decon, deconstruction or you're familiar with the idea of someone renouncing the faith, this is what comes to your mind. Those that wag their fists at God and say, there is no God. God must not be. How do you get there, though? How, how is it that so many people are raised up in a church just like this one with people and parents that love Jesus, just like the people and the parents, and the, to ultimately get to the place where you wag your fist and say, I know, I am certain there is no God, and if there is a God, it is not this one. Well, I think it begins like this. If blank is true, fill in the blank, then God must not be real. Right? Now, you can fill in that blank with almost anything. You can fill in that blank with an evil that you've experienced. Perhaps you would say, if, if my abuse is true, God must not be real. If, if my health is really in failure at the age of 25, like it is, God must not be real. If, if, if I, who have a fervent faith, can lose my job for no reason at all, God must not be real. If I can lose my mom at this point in my life, God must not be real. If my marriage can fail, God must not be real. Perhaps it's an evil that you see and observe at a distance. If the abuse of children is real, God must not be real. If war is real, God must not be real. If corruption in the church is as it appears to be, God must not be real. But there comes into our minds this understanding that if God is good, it's the question of evil. We've discussed this before. If God is good and God is almighty, then how is it that the world is filled with so much bad? But I want you to see that there are a couple of presuppositions behind this understanding that God doesn't live. First of all, you presuppose, you presuppose that you are able to accurately interpret all of the observations and experiences that you have. That you are able to see rightly, correctly, insightfully, and thoroughly all of the things that go into the reality of a disordered world and the complexity of this life. And then, then you also presuppose that you know exactly how God should react if that situation comes to bear. And so the person that deconstructs boldly to say that God doesn't live ultimately says that if God does not respond the way that I think that he should respond, if, if God is not the person that I believe that God ought to be, if God does not do what I believe that God ought to do, if God does not hold all of my opinions and all of my values, that's interesting. Somebody wants me to share the password. I'm sorry, I declined it. Then God must not be real at all. But there's a second, more insidious and more subtle uh, phase of deconstruction that I think is probably more prevalent among us and actually is what describes Judah during Malachi's day. 
That there aren't, most of us won't get to the place where we say that God doesn't live, but many of us may get to the place where we feel as though God doesn't live up to the hype. That God doesn't live up to the hype. That we get to the place where we have all of these aspirations and all of these hopes and all of these things, and we try to commit ourselves to the Lord, and we try to honor the Lord, and we try to do what is right by the Lord, but trying to do what is right by the Lord, it seems like doing all the right things leads to all the wrong results in your life. All of the consequences that you try to avoid seem to find you anyway. All of the losses that you try to miss out on seem like they find you anyway. And so you ran hard after Christ and you ran hard after the scriptures and you tried to live your life in a way that was honorable in the face of the Lord. And yet living your life in a way that was honorable in the face of the Lord seems to bring no benefit to you whatsoever. So God tells Judy, he says, I have loved you. But you say, this is their response, how have you loved us? In other words, God, when we look around and we see the shambles of the walls, when we look around and we see the shadow of the glory of the former temple, when we look around and recognize that we are not the center of the world, we are a vassal state in the world, when we recognize that our lives are impoverished and not as we would have for them to be, God, we want to know how in the world you can say you love us. Because it doesn't feel like you're living up to your end of the bargain. It doesn't look like you're delivering on your promises. I wonder how many of us can identify with them. See, the response of Judah to the seeming failure of God or the, their disappointment with God and their suffering and struggling throughout life was to respond with an apathetic, cold, dead religion. That they were not like those bold uh, proclaimers who say there is no God. They never, they never announced it. They just lived like it. Theirs was a practical atheism, not an announced atheism. They didn't say they didn't believe in God. They lived like they didn't believe in God. They began to just throw at God their spare time and their spare energy and their spare change. They didn't uphold the, the covenant in the way that the Lord had asked them to uphold the covenant because they felt like God had not upheld the covenant on his end. And so their passion for their faith waned. It drained from them. There was no zeal in their hearts for the Lord, that what you can say about Judah is that their suffering hardened their heart toward God and their response was to almost withdraw any passion for God altogether. I wonder if there's any here that can identify with that. You look around and your life is not at all how you dreamt it to be. Your marriage is not how you dreamt it to be. Your career is not how you dreamt it to be. Your family is not how you dreamt it to be. Your health is not how you dreamt it to be. Your, your wealth is not how you dreamt it to be. Your sense of security is not how you dreamt it to be. Your life is not the way that you aspired to as, as a graduating senior all those years ago. You look around and you see, you see problems. You, your life is a shadow of the glory that you believed that it would be. And I wonder over time if that has drained the zeal out of your faith so that there might have been a time in your faith in which you were committed to the Lord. There might have been a time in your faith when you were trying to live honorably before the Lord. And though you would never make a declaration that you don't believe in God, you have started living like it. And you throw at God just your spare time and your spare change and your spare energy. Well, that's where Judah is. You see, this is the more common and prevalent form of deconstruction. It's where most deconstructors fall. But it's what I want you to recognize is this is where all deconstruction starts. Nobody immediately goes from believing in God to renouncing God in a day. You drift there. You drift there gradually. You drift there slowly. You drift there one disappointment at a time, one bad decision at a time, one hard day at a time, one suffering moment at a time, one painful observation at a time, one big question at a time. And eventually, over enough time, it erodes enough faith so that you get to a place where you just aren't sure that God is there it are, or maybe you feel confident that he isn't. Well, what happens, I mentioned that the book of Malachi is arranged in what are called six disputations. And, and that's kind of a, a, a $3 word, but here, here's what it means. That six different times throughout the book of Malachi, God will come up and he will make a bold claim. We see it right here. He says, I have loved you. And so this is a claim by God. I have loved you. This is a declaration. This is in the perfect tense. This is what, in other words, this means it's always happened. It's happening right now. It's going to happen tomorrow. This is, this is something that is 
perfect from God, that he has completed it. I have loved you. And as God would make a claim, they would dispute the claim. That every claim that God makes, all six times that God makes a claim about his people in the book of Malachi, all six times the people of Judah respond back to the claim with a dispute, with a, with a complaint of their own. I have loved you, says the Lord, but you say, how have you loved us? Right. So you see this dispute from Judah. Well, I think what's interesting, as you look at the faithless people of Judah in the book of Malachi, and you think about these six complaints, you can actually arrange them into three different categories. And what I think is remarkable about that, and what I think is about that, what I think is relevant about our discussion today, is that the complaints that you see among the people of God in the prophecy of Malachi actually summarize the majority of the complaints that I hear from those that are deconstructing from the faith. They're probably, even if you're not deconstructing from the faith, they're the complaints that every believer at some point or another is likely to have in their walk with God. And so I think what we can begin to do is we can begin to identify where their complaints are so that we can kind of ultimately see how God responds to those complaints. First, I want you to see that what, what they complain, and these three complaints of, faith, of the faithless, is they complain that God isn't good. That God isn't good. There's a phenomena, and all of you who have been around long enough, you've recognized this, but there's there's a phenomena that often takes place where a child is celebrated and prepared for university and sent off to higher education, and they go and they they get the education at the the behest of their parents, with the support of their family, perhaps with the support of their church family. And then it's all too common. The same children come home, and now... They speak to their, their parents, those who supported them in the education and promoted them to go and get the education. And I think we should do that. I am pro-education. I want to I be on the record here. But they begin to treat others as inferior. That their parents don't have the enlightenment that they have. That their parents don't have the insight that they have. That their parents aren't as, uh, their, their worldview isn't as developed as they are. That they ha- their parents haven't been as exposed to things as they have. And, and actually, very often, it's, it's unfortunate, there is a, there's a generational snobbery that almost always assumes that this generation knows more than the last generation knew. That what we have come to know today is better than what they knew yesterday. And it, very often, the very people that supported them going to college, and, and you know what, honestly... All of us probably that have been through something, we can think through times in our lives where we felt that way, right? Until hopefully the Lord opened our eyes, until we were wiser. That almost every generation assumes that they are smarter and more informed and less ignorant and less naive than the generation that preceded them. That's what's happening with Judah here. That's what's happening with Judah here. That, that Judah says, I know what our ancestors taught. I know what our ancestors said that their experiences were. I know that our ancestors say that God delivered us from, uh, from uh, Egypt. My goodness, if I haven't heard that a thousand times, right? I know about the Passover. My goodness, if we haven't heard about that a thousand times. I know about the manna. We know about Jericho. We know about the army of the Lord down in the valley. We, we know about Elijah. We know, we know, we know, right? My goodness, no more stories we know. They knew what the generations before them had said. They knew what their ancestors had passed down. They knew what the ancient scriptures had said. Ezra, they had, during the time of Ezra, they had recovered the word of God there in the temple. They had recovered and begun to read it. And the people of God there would stand, an entire nation, all day long just to hear the word of God read to them. It was a revival. Their parents knew what had happened. They knew what God's word had said. But here's what they're saying. Our experience has taught us different. That yes, our ancestors meant well. Yes, our ancestors were, 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 were trying to be hopeful. Yes, our ancestors probably had some good experiences. But now, now we have experienced something deeply. I, I see this in the first two disputations that we find in chapter 1. He says, first of all, we've already covered this one. I have loved you, says the Lord, but how have you loved us? In other words, our experience is that God isn't as good as he says he is. Our experience is that God is actually not taking care of us at all. Maybe you did experience bread in the wilderness. Maybe you did experience the fire falling down from heaven. But let me tell you what we're experiencing. What we're experiencing is is shambles of walls and a tattered temple in the midst of an impoverished state. 
No, God hasn't been good to us. God, you say you love us, but it doesn't feel like it. You say you love us, but it doesn't look like it. That we seem to know better now than our ancestors knew. He continues the same stream of thought beginning in verse 6. He's getting to the second series of disputes here. Guess what God says? A son honors his father and a servant his master. If then I am a father, where is my honor? And if I am a master, where is my fear? So the Lord is saying, when I look around my people, it's like my people don't care for me. When I look around my people, there's no reverence for my name. When I look around my people, there's there's no awe of me. There's no love for me. There's no passion for me. There's no zeal for me. There's no desire for me. He says, but you say, so we're getting to where their complaint is, how have we despised your name? God tells them, by offering polluted food upon my altar, but you say, how have we polluted you? By saying that the Lord's table may be despised when you offer blind animals and sacrifices. This is the spare change they're throwing at God. Is that not evil? And when you offer those that are lame or sick, is that not evil? Present that to your governor. He says, go and try and treat your governor of Persia the way that you're treating me. And you see how that goes for you. Pay your taxes in the way that you're paying your tithes to me and see how that goes for you. Go and offer him your leftovers. Go and offer him your spare change. Go and treat him with the amount of disrespect and disdain that you're treating me. And see how that goes for you. But what are they saying back? What they're saying is, God, not only have you not loved us, you've made our lives worse. You haven't accepted us. You haven't, you, how dare you not accept our offerings? How dare you not accept the offering? As little as you've done for us, as little as you've given to us, who do you think you are? And so you can see that that their experience is is beginning to pour out of them as they come to a place of, of disbelief. See, this is actually one of the great cries of the new atheism movement. And what I want you to be aware of, brothers and sisters, especially those of you who may not be plugged into the information sources that, that are presenting this, is that there is a new atheism that is evangelistic. And they are seeking to evangelize those who believe in God out of belief in God. In the past, atheism has been essentially passive. Now it's fervent. It's passionate. It's a form of religion. And one of the leaders of this new atheism is a man, but before his death, was a man by the name of Christopher Hitchens. He wrote a book that I read years ago called God is Not Great. This is what he says. Human decency is not derived from religion. It precedes it. Human decency is not derived from religion. It precedes it. What does he say? The thesis of his book, God is Not Great, is that all of the war, that, that because of belief in God, there are more wars, not fewer. Because of the belief in God, there is more corruption, not lesser. Because of the belief in God, there is more abuse, not less abuse. That actually, wherever religion goes, wherever belief in God spreads, it actually begins to corrupt the people. That is, he's saying the exact same thing that Judah was saying in the face of God. He's just saying it more defiantly. God, the problem is not us. The problem is you. The problem is you. Brothers and sisters, do you find the roots of that springing up in your heart? Do you find the, the, yourself able to identify that with that which Hitchens says, that which those faithless Judaites said so many years ago? Do you look around the, the, your life and you see the shambles of your temple and you see the, the, the remembrance of what your dreams were in comparison to what your reality is? Does it feel as though maybe God isn't good? This is a complaint of, of deconstruction. Secondly, I want you to see that they, they, they complain that God isn't reasonable. That God isn't reasonable. As you continue into chapter 2, you see two more of these complaints from the people of God, from the faithless. And he says, this is God's end. And this th- second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because... He no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not 
Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant, that it had broken out in the, among the people of Judah that there was, there was rampant divorce, there was total disregard of the institution of marriage that, that God had brought together and that he had used to weave together his society. And what God is saying and, and what is often our experience where there is a devolving belief where there is a, a an unraveling of faith there is almost always an increase in sexual immorality it becomes it's one of the first markers almost always of an eroding society they continue on verse 17 he, he goes and he says you have wearied the lord with your words he says i'm, I'm growing weary with you I'm growing impatient with you. I'm, 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 I'm at my wit's end with you. I, I've, I've bestowed upon you grace after grace. I've bestowed upon you promise after promise. I've proven over generation after generation after generation that I'm with you, that I'm for you. But you say, how have we wearied him? By saying everyone who does evil is good in the sight of the Lord and he delights in them. Or by asking, where is the God of justice? So you can see that what God is recognizing in his people is that there is a bitterness that is springing up in their hearts toward him. That there is a bitterness between God and his, that his people are having toward him. And they're saying, God, where in the world are you? We look around and we see all of the injustices that we've experienced. We look around and we recognize that we have to follow after the laws of Persia. And you're concerned about your law? And you're concerned about your covenant? What we say, God, is maybe you should be less concerned about our sacrifices. Maybe you should be less concerned about our tithes. And maybe, God, you should be more concerned about showing us justice. Where is this God of justice? Where are you? That they looked at their lives. And by looking at their lives, they couldn't get from their lives to the goodness of God. And because they couldn't get to the goodness of God from their lives, they began to believe that their faith must be an unreasonable one. See, we all want a reasonable faith, don't we? We all want a faith where we can say A plus B equals C. That if I go to church three times a, a month, and if I, if I pray a prayer of blessing over my food, and if I cuss less than all of my coworkers cuss, then, then my life will be smoother, my life will be easier, my life will be more sensible, that it will enable me to make sure that my kids will be obedient and they won't rebel against me. It will make sure that God's blessing is upon my marriage, and my marriage will never be hard. And I think so much of this came from a culture that was well-intended of evangelism in the, in the 80s and 90s that said, come to God and he will bless your life. Come to God and your marriage will be better. Come to God and your, your life will be make more sensible. Come to God and you'll always have a sense of purpose and significance. And you come to God and you don't always feel that way. You don't always experience that. And you think like, Judah, where is he? Where is this God of justice? You see, what we want, brothers and sisters, very often is we want a faith that doesn't require any faith. The reality is, is we are disordered people living in a disordered world because it is under the curse of sin and it is under the reign of sin. And when you have disordered people living in a disordered world, you're going to experience and complexities that are beyond your ability to make sense of them. You're going to experience some hardships that are beyond your ability to comprehend them. You're going to experience some disappointments that you can't find the logical conclusion of. That, that as you begin to walk through life and experience life and endure life, that what you find is that if you're going to believe in God, it's going to require faith. It's going to require faith. It's going to require recognizing that God is bigger than what you see right now. But brothers and sisters, if you believe there is a God that set all of this into motion, if you believe there is a God that designed the water table and, and formed the, the galaxies and painted the stars in the sky and formed you in your mother's womb and gave the ability to rationalize and reason, if, if you believe there is a God in heaven that, that put in all of this into place and started rolling so that this is not accidental and it is not incidental, then that God must be infinite and you. You are Fionites. We want a faith that doesn't require any faith. And we want a God that is bite size. But the true God of heaven, the true God of heaven, any reasonable person can see, can't fit in here. Can't fit in here. 
So I wonder if you can identify with this complaint of Judah. Where is the God of justice? And there's a third complaint I want you to see. I think we see in the, the final two complaints. God isn't good, God isn't reasonable, and God isn't helpful. God isn't helpful. We, as human beings, are for profit, right? You know, I, I love not-for-profit. It seems like everybody is for profit, right? And the truth is, and this is, really leads to a crisis of faith so often, I believe, that it often feels like following after God and loving God and committing yourself to God amounts to a net loss. That I obey God so I don't get to do what I want to do. I give to God so I don't get to buy everything that I want to buy. I serve God so I don't get to go everywhere that I want to go. And because I don't get to do what I want to do or buy what I want to buy or, or go everywhere that I want to go, and I look at my life and I, I look at the hardships that I've endured and I look at the disappointments that I've known and I look at the frustrations that I have and I look at the, the disenchantment and disillusionment that begins to bubble up in me, it feels like a net loss. This is exactly the spirit that was breaking out in Judah. He says in chapter 3, he says, For I, the Lord, do not change. Therefore, you, O children of Jacob, are not consumed. From the days of your fathers, you have turned aside from my statutes and have not kept them. Return to me, and I will return to you, says the Lord of hosts. But you say, how shall we return? Will man rob God? Yet you are robbing me. But you say, how have we robbed you in your tithes and contributions? Do you hear what they're saying? God is opening him up and he's saying, I am a gracious and merciful God and I love my people and I'm committed to my people and I've always been committed to my people so you can return to me. You can repent. You can come and you can be right with me and you can be reunited with me again. And do you know what they say? Why in the world would we come back to you? Why would we return to you? That's just going to cost us. He said, they say it even more blatantly in the final disputation there. Verse 13 of chapter 3 says, Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said, it is vain. So now we're getting in, inside the interior of their mind, the essence of their soul, and the attitude that's behind their actions that they have said, even if it's not out loud, they've said internally, it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? You ever ask yourself that question? What's the point? What's the profit? What benefit is it for me to be a Christian? What benefit is it for me to forego all of the freedoms that my friends see to ha seem to have? What benefit is it to me to be a part of a, of a fledgling organization that seems to not be able to get out of its own way, that the whole social order seems to be organized again? What is the profit? I actually think, there's another one of the uh, ex-evangelicals that can help with John Piper's son, Abraham. He's become one of the evangelists of the ex-evangelical movement. And he has obviously a background of a very well-informed and well-educated faith. And he himself is a smart man. And I think this quote by him is actually pretty insightful. He says, at first, I pretended that my reasoning was high-minded and philosophical. But really, I just wanted to drink gallons of cheap sangria and sleep around. Do you hear what he's saying? He said, I wanted to be able to present all the philosophical arguments. I wanted to say, say that I'm not a Christian because I'm smarter than the Christians. I wanted to be able to say that I'm not a Christian because I'm more informed and I'm more enlightened than all the Christians. But it boils down to being a Christian prevented me from having what I wanted to have. Being a Christian prevented me from doing what I wanted to do. Being a Christian caused me to forfeit the freedoms that I ultimately wanted to have. So he evaluated the faith and he found that it wasn't helpful, that it was a preventative for the joys that he ultimately wanted in his life. And he looked at Christianity and he saw it as a net loss. And so Abraham Piper is here saying, I looked at the faith and this is what I said, what is the prophet? What is the prophet? Matter of fact, Joshua Harris, he... he uh, wrote, uh, I Kissed Dating Goodbye. Many of you probably read it, and he infamously has uh, deconstructed over the last few years. And he actually decided he wanted to profit from his deconversion to show how, in, how uh, indwelling this presence is. And he began to sell $275 deconversion kits. 
Because it's our nature, y'all. It's our nature. We want to live for us. We want to do for us. We want to profit for us. And what's interesting about the prophecy of Malachi is you see how God responds to the complainants. Now, we've read the, we spent three months studying the minor prophets now. You might not be excited about what God is going to say to the complainants, huh? You might expect that what God is going to do is he's going to just thump them. He's going to send Persia to lay siege to Jerusalem. That he's going to say, fine, I've grown weary of you. I'm done with you. You're out. You don't love me. You don't revere me. You don't respect me. You don't care for me. You don't believe I'm a prophet to you. You don't believe that I am who I say I am. You don't believe I'll do what I say I'm going to do. But God doesn't respond that way at all, actually. That we can see there in chapter 1, the verses that we read, how God responded to that first question that, you don't love me, God. And that's really the essence of how he responds in all six of them. And we can begin to see that God responds to them by saying this, I have loved you. I have loved you. I've set my love upon you. My love has never left you. Now think about this. Throughout the whole prophecy of Malachi, the people of God said, we're not sure we love you. We're not sure we want you. We're actually angry with you. We're disgusted with you. We're not sure that we believe in you. We believe that we're more educated. We're, we're educated enough to know that it's foolish to follow after you. And God sees all of their complaints. And God sees all of their bitterness. And all of their vitriol. And all of their disrespect. And all of their lack of reverence. And how does he respond? I have loved you. And he goes to this first this first complaint, this complaint that God had not loved him, and he responds by showing them three different declarations of his love for them. First, he says, I chose you, didn't I? I chose you. Look at what it says there. He says, yet, yet. In other words, it, you say that I don't love you. You say that I don't care for you. You say that I don't care. He says, is not Esau Jacob's brother yet, yet in spite of what you say, yet in spite of what you feel, yet in spite of what you ultimately seem to believe, yet I have loved Jacob. I've loved Jacob. If you go and you, you begin to say, you, you know, if you were here when I preached through Obadiah, that you have these two brothers, right? They're both the sons of, of Isaac. And I... Esau is the older and Jacob is the younger, but the angel of the Lord comes to God and he says, or comes to uh, Rebecca and he says that the younger is going, the older is going to serve the younger. The older, the younger is going to be the one that's ultimately the son of promise, the one that the birthright is going to be received. And if you listen to all the commentators, and honestly, if you just read the narrative yourself, Jacob is the less likable of the two, right? I mean, Esau, you know, he, I'm not saying that, you know, he's Tom Cruise or anything, but like, you at least have some sympathy for, for, I don't know why I said Tom Cruise, it just came out, but he, you know, like, you at least say, look, the guy was tired, the guy was hungry, he, he said, and, and when he comes later in life, he seems much more forgiving than Jacob does, like, he, he's not holding the grudges like Jacob seems, Esau's really the more likable guy. Well, both of them come to represent nations, Esau represents Edom, Jacob represents Israel, and he says, I want you to think about this. Why am I talking to you right now? Why is it that you have the story of the Exodus? Why is it that you have the story of the promised land? Why is it that you have the stories of Solomon and David's temple? Why is it that you have the prophets? Why is it that you have the word? Because I chose you. You think I don't love you? You think I don't care for you? Out of all the nations, and not because of a single thing you bring to the table, I chose you, and it wasn't because you're more likable. It wasn't because you were a better dude. It wasn't because you were a better people. It was because I am a gracious God. And so, yeah, I chose you, and I want you to think, and I want you to consider, where is Edom? Where is Esau? Where is that nation that was supposed to be your brothers? Where are those that are not chosen? And they are completely vacated from the premises of the earth. And so he's bringing them to their mind. Where would you be if it was not for me? Where would you be if it were not for me? I had a friend who was adopted when he was younger. 
And as he got, grew to be a teenager, he began to rebel against his parents. He, he was raised in a Christian home, and they went to church, and his parents had trained him in the way of the Lord. But as he became a teenager, he was resistant to their training, and he was resistant, as teenagers generally are, right? Resistant to the rules that were brought and the curfews that were in place and the responsibilities and the chores that he was given around the house. And so he would be tempted to often think, if I were still with my birth parents, I bet it wouldn't be this way. If I were still with my birth parents, I bet I wouldn't be held to such a high standard all the time. If I were with my birth parents, I bet I would have greater freedom than I have. If I were with my birth parents, I I bet they wouldn't demand so much out of me. As time went on, eventually, he had, his parents told him he had the opportunity to meet his birth parents. And he went and he met them. And upon entering the room, he recognized immediately the disorder and the dysfunction that was in that family. And he recognized, and he recognized that it had been perpetuated from one generation to the next. His response, the only thing he really needed to do was to leave, go into his mom and dad's house, to hug them, and to say, I'm sorry. Why? Because he saw who he would have been had it not been for the adoption of his parents. He saw who he would have been had it not been that his mom and dad said, out of all the kids, out of all the struggling circumstances, I choose to bestow my love upon you. Oh, in the midst of our frustrations, in the midst of our rebellions, in the midst of our sinfulness, in the midst of our hurts, in the midst of our losses, in the midst of our disappointments, in the midst of our dad's dreams, it's easy to look up at God and think, how dare you? What could you have done for me? But God reminds you, before the foundations of the earth, I chose you. I set my love upon you. I have adopted you. If you find yourself identifying with the complaints of Judah all those years ago with the complaints of those that are deconstructing from the faith. Have you considered where you would be if it were not for Jesus? Have you considered where you would be if it were not for Jesus? See, the resurrection, the resurrection has offered you a new life, a new hope. A new endurance, so much so that even all of your sufferings and all of your disappointments and all of your failures are going to be turned to glory. The resurrection has secured for you a treasure greater than every other treasure so that there is nothing in your life. No loss, no devastation, no disappointment, no hurt, no illness that will ultimately be seen as a net loss because you have secured through the resurrection the greatest treasure in the universe, Christ himself. And what can separate us from the love of Christ? Nothing. Nothing. Oh, there's going to be days that feel like a net loss. But he chose you. He chose you. Second declaration, he says that I avenged you. I avenged you. He goes on to say, I have laid waste his hill country and left his heritage to jackals of the desert. If Edom says we are shattered, but we will rebuild the, t- the ruins, the Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts. I told you, uh, I think uh, last week, that it has a, it's a picture of sovereignty, but even more than a picture of sovereignty, it's the idea that God himself is the commander of a great army. So it's him as the general of the angel armies. And he says, I am the Lord of hosts. I am the one who is mighty to deliver you. I am the one against whom no principality can withstand. I am the one that will win every victory. And he says what? And I'm going to defeat every stinking one of your enemies. That I am for you. He said, look to Edom. Right now, you're a vassal of Persia. I know you don't like it. Right now, you're struggling because you feel like there is injustice that is coming. And you look at me and you think, where are you, O God of justice? But remember, I had prophesied through Obadiah that I would bring Edom to its end when they danced on your grave, didn't I? When they came and they profited from the siege of Babylon, didn't I tell you that I was going to come against them? Didn't I tell you that I would fulfill my word and that anybody that came against my people would have to deal with the Lord of hosts? Where are they today? Can you name one? Can you take me to their city? 
Can you show me where they reside? Can you show me where they live? You cannot because I kept my word. I have stood against all those who have stood against you. And you can rest assured even if you can't see it. And even if you don't feel it, I will still avenge every injustice that comes against you. One of the most memorable elder meetings that I remember us ever happen, having several years ago. We were going through some, some, a difficult season as a church. And John Hall spoke up at this particular meeting. And all of you who know John know John is a meek and humble and a soft-spoken brother. And I remember what John said. He said this, if anyone stands against my church, I stand against them. If anyone stands against my church, I stand against them. That is exactly what God is saying to his people. You can rest assured. You can count it. You can know, even in your hardest day, even in your day of greatest grief, even in your day of greatest disappointment, you can rest assured. Anyone who stands against my people, anyone who stands against my church, I will avenge you. Of course, the cross is the clearest picture of that, isn't it? See, your greatest enemy is not a disappointing life. Your greatest enemy is not a life of suffering or hardship. Your greatest enemy is the loss of life. Your greatest enemy is death and sin and the grave. And there on the cross, there on the cross, God has shown that he will stand against your enemies. And there on the cross, God has shown that he will overcome your enemies. And there at the cross, God has shown that he will avenge every injustice, not just against you, but every injustice that is by you. So I invite you to remember the cross, to entrust your bitternesses and entrust your disappointments and entrust those that have sinned against you and the evils that you've experienced, to entrust them unto the Lord and to know that whoever stands against the Lord's church, he stands against them. The final declaration of his love, he says, I'm not finished. I'm not finished. In other words, he says, He says there in the end, your own eyes shall see this. Great is the Lord beyond the border of Israel. That you're going to look over the horizon and you're going to see that my storyline didn't match your storyline. And my timeline didn't match your timeline. But there is one who's going to cry out in the wilderness. There's going to be silence, but there's going to be a break in the silence. And John the Baptist is going to declare that the Lamb of God has come. And the Lamb of God is going to secure your place before all nations, for all times, for all time's sake. And you, you will be a, a church against whom the gates of hell cannot prevail. Don't look at your disappointments as the finished product, brothers and sisters. Don't look at your letdowns as the finished products. Don't look at your suffering as the finished product. Look beyond the border of your life. Look beyond the border of what God has done to see what God is going to do and to recognize, to recognize that he's not finished. Let me pray for us. Thank you for watching or listening to one of our sermons. We would love to have the opportunity to connect with you one-on-one. We are not a perfect church, but we are a joyful church, and we want to help you increase your joy in Christ. We would love for you to come and worship with us one day soon. You'll be able to find information about our worship services, about who we are, what we believe, what we do, what we're hoping to accomplish on our website at ironcity.org. And we would invite you to go and to check out all the information there. We look forward to seeing you soon.